This episode of Author Stories is brought to you by Athon Books. Check out the very best in science fiction and fantasy at athonbooks.com. You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Jared Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O. Sanders, Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Tim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Julia Fine on the show with me. Uh, Today, we are talking about her brand new book, The Upstairs House. This is such a phenomenal book. If you love thrillers like I do uh, and, you know, books with a psychological twist and uh you're absolutely gonna love this book this must be uh, on your bedside table or by your reading chair or, or wherever you love to fall into a book because i promise when you fall into this one you won't crawl out until the very end uh welcome to the show julia thank you so much for having me <laughs> i'm so sorry i just knocked my my boom microphone with my headphones uh, sorry about that uh Julia, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Mm, um, my first memory of wanting to be a writer. I have always been a reader since I was very, very young um, and sort of basically lived at my local library, but I think I um, decided that I wanted to be a writer Probably we had this old desktop computer that was like the family computer um, that had a word processing system on it. And I would just like sit there and monopolize it writing stories. Um, But the stories were always it was always like the first three pages of a novel. And that was as far as I would get. I was maybe like eight or nine. Um, And so I probably have some somewhere in the either are dozens of beginnings of my elementary school aged novel um (laughs) and so that that probably is the memory but it wasn't until after college and when I was sort of unhappy um in I guess the the career if you could call it that that I had chosen I was working in public relations and I hated it and that was when I sort of said this let me go back to sort of what I really wanted to do so there's my my childhood memories where it was sort of a hobby and then um probably in around like 2011, 2012, when I sat down and said, this is really something like that I want to do. So you would consider yourself to be a, a bookish kid. You, you, oh, you said yeah. that you were oh, always. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My friends, my friends were books. I had, I had some friends, I think, but I definitely, <laughs> I was one of those kids who would go to the library once a week, check out five books and just like read one in a sitting. Um, so, so let me ask you, um, was there ever a, a book or a series or an author that just completely changed the way you think about books that 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 mm-hmm. opened your mind to the possibility that books could transport you to a new place and new yeah. emotions and all of that stuff? 
Um, I remember reading, so I remember reading Philip Pullman's uh, Dark, his Dark Materials series as they were coming out. And I think that that's a book series where the first book, it's, it's fantasy and it's a different world, but it feels like a more traditional fantasy. Obviously, there's elements of it that are super unique. Um, but then when he came out with the second book, I remember realizing, I mean, I was still fairly young um, and it, they are books for kids, which I guess it's a whole nother conversation of whether those actually are books for children, but they're marketed toward children and kids can read them. And I remember seeing sort of how the worldview shifted because it's um, you go from sort of believing that the world he's created is this one world to this sort of multiverse um, astrophysics situation. Right. And uh, I remember thinking like, oh, you can talk about philosophy in books and you can talk about ideas and it's not just about telling a good story with compelling characters it's also like books are about ideas which I think was something I had I had understood intrinsically I'm sure Um, but I remember with those books really thinking oh this is a deliberate conversation it's not just me sort of reading into something like this is what he's trying to do here Um, and of course after that I became an English major so (laughs) (laughs) Well, looking at the the two books that you've published, and now seeing those early influences of Philip Pullman um, really brings uh, brings into focus uh, kind of where I think that that you might um, be coming from as a storyteller. W- what is it about fantasy that uh, that you love so much? Is it mm-hmm. the the ability to tell? Um, kind of plain truths, but to kind of mask them in fantastical settings. And, and yeah. uh, it, what is it about the power of fantasy that allows us to do I that? Think, um, I mean, I, I love I love to read sort of more traditional, like high fantasy stuff. Um, but I, I don't know that I could ever write it. I feel like that there's sort of tra- traditional fantasy, which I say, you know, I think like Tolkien or... Um, like Mercedes Lackey is one that I read a lot as a kid, but sort of those, those were like the real, the world building sort of high fantasy where it's really about all the detail and about really transporting you. Um, and I find myself drawn as a writer really to more what I would call like fabulism or speculative fiction, I think, because I'm not sure um, that my talent lies in like sort of crafting this entire world from scratch. I, I have not tried to do it, mostly because I don't know that I would be that successful. But I do love the idea of using sort of fantastical elements um, and the idea of the speculative, the ability to take sort of these metaphors and make them literal on the page. So in The Upstairs House, it's a woman who is, um, you know, I was thinking about parenthood and how when you become a parent for the first time you sort of are mourning the loss of the life that you used to lead and the person that you were and who you might have been without a child and so I thought oh well here's a ghost story let's bring a literal ghost in you know and not just talk about the feeling of being haunted but let's talk about like now I can I can tell a haunted a haunted house sort of poltergeist story about this feeling and so I love I love how you can heighten um again if I'm writing a novel about ideas for me, sort of adding a speculative element um, or some fabulism into it just lets me push it even further and lets me play in a way that I think makes, I, I would hope it makes it not only sort of about ideas, but also entertaining. I think the entertainment value can come in um, perhaps with the speculative element as well. Sure. Um, your first book that you published, What Should Be Wild, uh, is is more 
of a uh, what I would call a direct fantasy mm-hmm. or um mm-hmm. at, as and then the the new book um the upstairs house is more of a psychological fantasy if you will like like mm-hmm. uh you're constantly as a reader you're constantly wondering um is this real is this a figment of her imagination is this her working through uh, you know some things that she's going through and 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 I, i'm kind of i'm talking around the subject because i want to <laughs> talk specifically about the book yeah. in a minute but i don't want to give away too much yet um but you're the first book that you wrote um, what should be wild was, or the first book that you published, was that mm-hmm. the first book that you had written? Um, I wrote, I wrote a novel, a novel length manuscript, um, that was, I feel I, you know, like the, the bad pancake story where like the first one you, you make is always burnt or mushy oh, yeah. or whatever it is. So I have my, what I would like to call my bad pancake novel, which is never going to see the light of day. I'm with sort of me working through what it meant to write a novel, but what should be wild was the first book that I sort of was like, hey, someone can read this and I wouldn't feel totally ashamed. <laughs> so, um, a lot yeah, of people got, have a, have yeah. what they would describe as a desk drawer novel or a trunk yeah. novel. You, you write and then you file it away. I've never heard it described as a, as a bad pancake novel. I love that uh, <laughs> analogy. <laughs> yeah, it just is. It, I, I like it because I sort of, when you make it, I don't make pancakes that often, but when I do, I now know, like, just throw away the first batch. You know, it's not even, right. not even put it in a drawer. I just throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so after you wrote that first novel and we won't, we won't dwell on that, but um, mm-hmm. after you wrote that and you kind of got whatever it was that you needed to get out of your system, out of your system and, and you were primed and ready. Um, what was the, what was the first idea that came to you for what should be wild was, you know, I, I'm fascinated by the beginnings of things and where yeah. one moment there's a story mm. and, and a moment earlier there was no story. It just, you know, comes out of the ether. Just it's magic. Um, but for you, what what is that first moment? Is it a character that walks on the stage of your mind? Is it uh, maybe a, a newspaper or a magazine article that you read um, that then, you know, starts the what if game in your mind? What, what was that first kernel of an idea for what should be wild? For what should be wild, it was um, a radio, sort of a brief NPR sort of snippet. Um, there was a, so what should be wild is about a girl who is born from the womb of her dead mother and has the power to kill and revive with a touch. So like you said, it's much more traditional fantasy. It's sort of, I look at it as sort of an adult fairy tale. Um, but I had been, there was a, a legal case in Texas back at this point, it must've been 2012, 2013, where a pregnant woman um, was, brain dead and there was really no chance of reviving her and she was I think 20 weeks pregnant and the fetus was not developing and there was a case of what the family wanted to take her off of life support and the state said no because she's pregnant you can't and so there was a whole legal battle um and I I heard about that and I immediately thought I was fascinated by one like say you know, it was there was a medical some medical miracle where the baby was able to continue to gestate, even though you know it, it just wasn't biologically possible. But say it was. Um, so there's the fantasy that comes in. What would it be like to sort of be born from that legacy? Um, and then I also was very interested in just looking at the way the women's bodies were controlled and the way sort of it was no longer sort of who who how society felt so comfortable saying you know this is the situation we have the right to make these decisions um 
And so What Should Be Wild sort of came out of those two things. And it ended up being really a book about um, women's bodies and women's role in society. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience, and also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. So when when you start, you know, thinking of of heady topics like that, um, you know, there if, if you were to publish a book purely about that topic as an exploration of that topic, um, there there may or may not be um, a, a a wide audience that would like to sit down and and read and ponder about those. But when you couch it in a story and you mm-hmm. couch it in a fairy tale and a fantasy, um, you really open up the the ability to talk about much broader subjects to a much broader audience um that's that's one of the things that i love uh, about fantasy in particular and and fiction Mm -hmm. in general is that we it really does lower barriers to um 
to let people kind of shelve their preconceived notions and and walk out a story through someone else's experience. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think that um, in both of my books, but particularly the new one and the new one, I'm talking a lot about um, new motherhood and some of the more difficult aspects of it. And I think that there's a part of people. I mean, I, I'm sure that there will be people who will look at the upstairs house, which is about a postpartum woman who's really struggling and sort of say, how can you, you know, mothers aren't supposed to be that way. But what I was trying to show is, you know, that by, like you said, instead of just writing about like a lot of moms feel this way, you say, here's a character who you get to know and you um, relate to and you go through the journey with this particular character. And for me, the goal of fiction um, and literature in general as a reader is to try to sort of walk side by side through experiences that I myself could never have and try to understand the way other people view the world. And so I think when you you have both sort of the project of fiction and literature in general, and then you add that speculative element, that's something that sort of makes people feel both entertained and also sort of removed from the immediacy of the emotion you know like you can say like oh this is a ghost story so it's not as scary for me to read about these feelings which is funny to say um because like a ghost story obviously is scary but on an emotional level on a like you know is does this hit too close to home if you're able to read it and say like oh this is a woman and it's a ghost story and so it doesn't feel necessarily so much like something painful for me personally if that makes sense absolutely so you publish what should be wild uh, as your first novel, your debut novel, and uh, we talk a lot on the show about the the gift of anonymity. And there's there's something about when you write that first book, no one is expecting it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a handful of people are. You, you've got an agent, you've got a publisher, you have family members that know you're doing it, but the the wider world does not know that Julia Fine is writing a book and <laughs> I need to be expecting this book. Uh-huh. But when you publish that first book, then then people start to pay attention. And then, you know, I wonder when Julia Fine's going to publish her next one. And then Julia Fine is probably under contract for another book. And so, <laughs> you know, there are obligations that come with that. Mm-hmm. And that that second book always has the baggage of all that stuff that that comes with it for for good or for ill. Um what was when you published what should be wild um did you have um the, the new book already in mind uh, the upstairs house was that already percolating in your mind or no, kind of, what I, was that um, process so i i sold each book separately um and it is with the same publisher and my same the same editor but i didn't i didn't try to go out with you know some some people will go out with an idea or maybe the first 75 pages and i waited um, my agent and I waited until we had the full book to sell it, which I think took off a lot of pressure because there was no, you know, I, I felt like if this book didn't work, it wasn't, there was nobody expecting me to sort of force it into a shape that it it couldn't be in, which was nice. Um, we'll see if that's sort of how I want to do things forever. Um, but for a second book, I think it was nice because it did take off some of that pressure because if this didn't work, it would be frustrating because I had devoted so much time to it, but there wasn't money on the line. There wasn't a contract, um, until sort of, I knew what it was and it was a full, a full draft. Um, but I started the upstairs house shortly after, I think I started it actually during my book tour for what should be wild because I was traveling and I was finally able to sort of have 
like a new a new headspace almost. It's funny, I've written both books at different desks and that's just because we moved um, in between them. But I sort of feel like being in a new physical spot is really useful for me in terms of trying to come up with new ideas and sort of get back into the groove of writing a novel. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't start writing The Upstairs House until um, What Should Be Wild was out. And I didn't really start writing it in earnest um, until... I think until most of the publicity for What Should Be Wild was done. So they really were two separate projects. Um, but I feel like I got very lucky in just being very emotionally attached to the upstairs house and sort of buying into the project really quickly and really falling in love with the research that I was doing. Um, and I also, the other difference between the two books is um, I had a baby in between I had a baby uh, about a year before What Should Be Wild was published, but I had already written it because um, there's the, as you know, um, sort of the pipeline of publishing. It just, you know, you sell the book and it's like 18 oh, yeah. months until it comes out. So I had a baby um, and I had taken a little break because I just was, you know, exhausted and sort of in a fog of new motherhood. Um, and but when I did get back to writing, I suddenly had very... Um, I had time constraints. I wrote during my son's naps and I think that made it, it made it harder in that there was less time, but in a way it also made it easier in that it was more focused time. You know, like I couldn't spend time just like messing around on the internet or, you know, saying like, oh, I'll get to it later tonight. It was like, this is my two and a half hours a day. And if I don't get to it now, I won't get to it. And I think that gave the book a sense of urgency and my writing of the book, a sense of urgency that really for a second novel, especially that can sort of be, so difficult to get out it really just forced the book out of me well the 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 publishing process that you went through uh, with book one and book two um you sort of insulated yourself from that that book two stress that comes mm -hmm. uh by by writing it completely and then selling it separately yeah. do you feel like and and you know this is just a what if question no one really knows but um if you if book two had been um the second book of a two book contract um and you published what should be wild um you know the the tone is different in in of these two books yeah. they're, they're both fantastical elements but but a different sort um do you feel like that the upstairs house would have been a different book coming on the tail of the first book and and that that a publisher might have wanted to kind of shoehorn it into what book one was yeah i mean i think i think it probably would i i feel like i also got very lucky um in that my so my my first book um i think is much well they're both pretty niche i guess they're just sort of two different niche audiences uh but i think that yeah i i definitely could have tried and maybe would have been pushed into writing something more like what should be wild um but i i think one of the reasons the upstairs house works so well is because I sort of steered clear. It's a much more adult book. Like they're both books for adults, but in one I was writing about a teenager. Um, and this is just like much more firmly sort of in in the grown-up world. Um, and I'm not sure that I would have been able to make that jump. Not that not even not even that I would have had pressure from the publisher, but I think sort of just like you said, like just sort of thinking about them as a bundle, it might have right. been harder to distinguish the upstairs house and differentiate it. 
So so we've talked about the upstairs house enough. Let, let's get into it. Um, the Megan Weiler. Uh, tell me about Megan. Where, where did she come from? And and what was it that that connected you to her so deeply? Yeah. So um, Megan in the upstairs house, she's the protagonist and she's the main narrator. And she um, the book opens with her like in the hospital immediately having just had her first baby. And it follows. um the baby in the first like two and a half, three months of the baby's life. And um, Megan is a sort of lapsed PhD student. Um, She's getting her PhD in history and she's working on a dissertation about Margaret Wise Brown, uh, the children's author. And that's sort of how, how the book then jumps into sort of what, what Megan's relationship with Margaret Wise Brown becomes. Um, But I, yeah, I, with Megan, it's interesting because I, um, she, she's definitely very distinct from me, but she also became almost a vessel for some of my own feelings about motherhood. Um, so like I said, I started writing this book in earnest, like really drafting the book when my son, my firstborn was about a year old. And, um, I had, a lot of thoughts about sort of what I had just been through as a new parent. And I felt like I had not seen a lot depicted um, in fiction or even on film about, I think there's, I mean, there's not enough about early parenthood in general, but there was really very little about those first few weeks with a brand new baby and how right. life-changing that is and how just emotionally and physically difficult it is. And so I really wanted Megan to, um, be sort of ser- serve as um, a way for me to talk about my own feelings, but also just as, you know, a, a, rep- a representation of what I think a lot of women go through after having a baby that they then don't really see in popular culture. Like there's a lot of, you know, oh, oh, you're home with your baby and it's so sweet and cozy and cuddly and how nice that you have maternity leave, you know, things like that. Um, and Megan really struggles because she sort of feels the loss of her identity before she had a baby and she doesn't have the time or the mental space to keep working on this dissertation. And her husband is means well, but he is often gone and he's a little bit sort of bumbling clueless. And um, she just has a lot of feelings about her new role as, you know, having to be awake with the baby and having to nurse the baby and not having her own, um, sort of how to put her own her own needs second, which we sort of take for granted, I think, that, you know, mothers put their own needs second. That's like, you know, being a mother means sacrificing. But it is, there's a shift. Well, two things. One, there's a shift into that role, I think, um, where you have to, if 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 you do believe that being a mother means sacrificing your own needs, you, you don't just go from being your own person who really is only beholden to yourself to suddenly you know, giving up everything for a baby, like literally overnight, you know, the baby's in you and then comes out of you. And all of a sudden you're supposed to just give things up. Like there's a transition period. Um, And I guess the second thing being, is that really what it means to be a mother? Should that be what motherhood means that you sort of sacrifice? Like, obviously we say, you know, you do anything for your kids, you love your kids deeply, but is it, is it possible? I guess my question in this book is, and the question that Megan poses and represents is, is it possible to love your kids but not necessarily um, want to sort of take on that traditional stereotypical role of motherhood. You know, can motherhood be something other than that, you know, um, 
that sac that total sacrifice and that total sort of erasure of self. And so Megan is there sort of to answer all of my questions about these things. Um, and we sort of watch her as she struggles with those questions and as she sort of falls further and further into um, basically a postpartum mood disorder that is also sort of a haunting. So the character of Margaret Wise Brown uh, factors uh, prominently in the story. And I'll let the readers decide if she's a fictional character or if it's it's the actual embodiment of Margaret Wise Brown. That's that's one of the fun things to kind of unravel in the story. Um, why Margaret Wise Brown? What what was it about her um, that connected so deeply with you? Um, so I um, I had not I, I had read as a kid. I think I had read Runaway Bunny and Goodnight Moon and was sort of aware. It's hard not to be aware of that just because those books are everywhere. And, you know, Goodnight Moon, I think, is like the best selling children's book globally of all time. Um, so I knew the name and I knew the main sort of popular books. And then when my son was born and I was reading those books over and over and over and over, I was sort of struck by how um, I could read Goodnight Moon, especially every night for five months straight and still be interested in it. It wasn't boring to me. It was, you know, it, it felt um, like in the way that sort of the best poetry, you can just read it over and over and over and over and get something new out of it every time. And so I was curious about Margaret. Um, and when I, I, I went in, I guess, sort of expecting her to be in Goodnight Moon, there's like the quiet old lady whispering hush who sits in the rocking chair with a little stocking cap while the baby bunny falls asleep. And I expected Margaret Wise Brown to sort of embody that, um, whether or not she was sort of an old woman or just to have, you know, that attitude, um, that ethos. And I was shocked because she, once I started reading a biography of her, I she was just so different than what you would imagine. Um, she died at 42, so she was never, ever an old woman. And she was in this 10-year um, lesbian relationship with an older woman, and she was a rabbit hunter. She was very sort of glamorous. She gave this famous interview where she said she didn't care for children, which it seems like was tongue in cheek, but that got picked <laughs> up and, you know. Um, so she was just very, she's like sassy and interesting. And I just like fell in love with her. Um, and I felt like my reading of her work then got so much deeper with a new understanding of who she was. I just read her books so differently. And I was really then excited to have other, I, my goal is for other people then, whether it's through reading The Upstairs House, you decide you know her well enough or you read The Upstairs House and you want to seek out more information about her. Um, I think, you know, I really do feel like she deserves to be known more sort of for the life she led. Um, and I wanted other people to have that same experience of rediscovering her books through this, this new lens, um, especially because she, so she was a great children's writer, but she also came from this tradition. Um, she worked in New York City and she came up th uh, at a school called the Bank Street School of Education or the Bureau of Educational Experiments. And so a lot of her books are based in research and sort of research into early childhood education and child psychology. And she was using a lot of um, elements of sort of modernism. So like Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, some of the stuff that they were doing for adults, she was sort of implementing for children. And so there's just so, so many layers and so much there when you when you step back, it's so much more than just like good night room. Um, and so yes, yeah, so I hope 
that that was that was in the beginning the impetus, and then I guess as I got to know her more as a character, um, I felt like she was just such a good, um, I guess fr- friend, ghostly friend for Megan to have too, in terms of just like bouncing ideas off of each other about like being. Um, about conformity and about relationships with children and um yeah <laughs> so the upstairs house is a is a great fun read um i i don't want people to to think that it is not uh an, <laughs> an, an enjoyable entertaining page turning read because it absolutely is it absolutely is um but you know at the end um you're left thinking about um you know these kind of heady topics of you know motherhood and how how we change when we become parents both both women and men and um you know what uh, the the stages of life that you go through and and how you're kind of different people at, and and one and you know a major thing is um you know how we deal with mental health and and mm-hmm. that we just don't want to talk about it um but when when someone gets to the end of the upstairs house and closes that back cover what do you hope they're left with um i i hope that they come away with an understanding of how nuanced parenthood can be um and i hope that whether there's someone who has a new parent in in their lives and sort of now recognizes what that new parent might be going through or is a parent or sort of is someone themselves who's had some of these feelings that have we've been told are taboo and that we don't really talk about. Um, I hope that they, you know, would recognize themselves and recognize that it's not just, you know, good mother, bad mother, you know, love my baby entirely or wish I wasn't a mom. You know, there's there's so many layers to it. It's such a nuanced experience. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope that readers come away thinking more deeply about the different ways um, that women can inhabit the role of mother and and men the role of father, um, and the different ways that we sort of as a society can help parents through those first few months, which are really, really difficult and are especially difficult right now um, when a lot of the networks that we've relied on, you know, even having like someone in your house to hold the baby while you sleep is really hard during a pandemic. And so I hope that people sort of come away thinking like, what can we as a society do uh, to support parents, I guess. Absolutely. The uh, the upstairs house is available everywhere now. No matter how you like to consume books, whether it's in hardback and you know actual paper or Kindle edition or audiobook, it's available everywhere now, and you can grab it. There are links to the book in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Julia, this has been so much fun chatting. If people are uh, just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at fine, J-U-L-I, F-I-N-E-J-U-L-I, or my website is julia-fine.com. Excellent. We'll put links to those in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Uh, Julia, I love the book. I love everything that you're doing. We're going to send everyone to see you. Uh, Thank you for taking time to come on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, Look no farther than Pico's house. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. 
They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. The Bad Company Complete Series Omnibus, books 1 through 7. Humanity's Greatest Export, Justice. Space is a dangerous place, even for the wary, especially for the unprepared. The aliens have no idea. Here comes The Bad Company. The Bad Company, book 1, Colonel Terry Henry Walton takes his warriors into battle for a price in this first installment of The Bad Company. He believes in the moral high ground and is happy to get paid for his role in securing it. Set in the Cutharian Gambit universe, Terry, Char, and their people-humans, werewolves, were-tigers, and vampires form the core of the Bad Company's direct action branch, a private conflict solution enterprise. Join them as they fight their way across Tissakinan 4, where none of the warring parties were what they expected. The seven-book series Omnibus includes The Bad Company, Blockade, Price of Freedom, Liberation, Destroyer, Discovery, Overwhelming Force. Grab the complete Bad Company series by Craig Martell now. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Anderley. Virtutus Gloria Mercies. Translation, Glory is the Reward of Valor. Fed up with playing the normal game, recent university graduate, ex-cum laude, ex-soccer star, ex-popular and mostly broke Cara Madonna changes her life when she decides to research how to be a witch and believes it. Cara didn't want to go back east and deal with her overbearing mom, so when university was done, she stayed behind in Los Angeles. Little did she realize how controlling moms can be from the other side of the country. Feeling a little desperate to make her own way, she buys a few books on business and one on a lark, How to Be a Badass Witch. That's when the trouble started. Find out just what trouble a young woman can get into when the magic just might be real. How to Be a Badass Witch by Michael Andrews. 